Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. You know, last time it was just you and I who were talking. Uh, we we've talked. Uh, we were talking a lot about like uh, some th- changes in our practice schedule and in mm-hmm. our life and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to check in on you and see how that was going and uh, if uh, the changes, how the changes have been, or what kind of uh, how that has affected your life. Yeah, it's a really good point to check in. Actually, uh, between. Then and now, we went to the beach for a week, which was a change of scene, longer change of scene than I've had in a long time, actually. And of course, that inevitably meant changes to my practice routine. And it ended up being, uh, well, I mean, sleeping in became sort of the first priority. It started on the first day because we got there really late. What we decided to do was drive after drive at like bedtime. We were going to South Carolina, so it was like a four and a half hour drive. And we left when it was time for the kids to go to sleep. And so they would sleep in the car rather than be miserable all day in the car, you know, or sleep mm-hmm. for two hours and then wake up and be miserable. And it basically worked. But we got in at one in the morning and so there was no way I was going to wake up at five in the morning and go sit zazen for an hour after after a night like that. So it actually ended up really kind of messing me up that the drive. It was a little stressful and I was like really holding it in my body. So I uh, slept pretty late the next day and I was kind of physically not super into being alive <laughs> the next day. Um, and I didn't skip practice, but I, I ended up just kind of sitting for 20 minutes and doing Qigong and that was it. And, you know, which is what I also did on sort of the major extreme days over my last year, you know, like when, when Lila was born, for example, I sat 20 minutes in the hospital, uh, the following day. Uh, and the, the next few days it did sort of naturally fall that like at eight or nine in the morning, there would be time for me to get, you know, 45 minutes by myself. So I would sit 20 or 30 minutes and do Qigong. And that was, that was all I needed. But it was a great opportunity to sort of see how that felt, to see what it felt like to uh, to try try less and see if it if it felt like enough, and it did, but not quite in the way that I expected, and I didn't realize what that fully meant until I got home. Actually, so I got home, I tried to reinstate. Well, I didn't try. I mean, I did reinstate the the super early wake up and to start sitting at that time again. But the exact same thing was happening. The baby was waking up in the middle of my practice time and it was just sort of hit. It was still frustrating, but it hit sort of differently than it had before since I had this week in the middle of doing, you know, something more flexible and, and, you know, whatever I could was, was what I could do. And after a few days of it, I had this different relationship to, I I think what I, I think what I realized is that my sense of what is the most I can do has moved from a sort of internal psychological or physical sense to something more objective than that. 
like the most practice I can do. I used to be limited by my legs or my mind or some, you know, internal obstacle that was something I felt like I was struggling against within myself. And now that doesn't impose the limit. I either sit for the amount of time that I intend to sit or something external creates the limit. So I've been pushing up against, you know, the most I can do for so long that doing the most I can do has become my practice, you know, not just Mm -hmm. sitting for X minutes, but like the maximum, like I set, I set X minutes to maximum Mm -hmm. and the, and, and for such a long time, that's been that's you know the, sitting the most I can do has been the thing I've been training in. So once I got back from the beach, I realized that the most I can do, first of all, as we discussed, must be enough. Like that's what enough means. Yeah. But also was moving around every day, and that there's nothing that I can do to change that. Clearly, right, right. Uh, but but it ended up leading to a to a change that wasn't the one I was thinking of at all, which is and I don't we've never even really talked about this as far as I can remember, but I I've been tracking the time that I've been sitting for a really long time for many for like three or four years, because because I'm a nerd and because the iPhone lets you do that, so and 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 it was a way of making keeping myself accountable you know mm-hmm. like making sure I was really doing it. And didn't have any kind of inflated sense of how much practice I was doing. And I guess part of me was also a little bit curious from a scientific point of view. Like if I sit X hundred hours, will I be able to notice a difference or something, you know? And as soon as I realized that the most I can do today has no bearing on the most I can do tomorrow or the most I could do yesterday because the difference, the amount of, you know, of objective time I have to practice is going to change because of whatever's happening. It immediately seemed absurd to me to be keeping track this way. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only reason. It's like a, a bunch of reasons I, it seemed absurd came to mind. And, you know, the, the big one is like what happens to the Zazen that I did before I started tracking, you know? Like, does, yeah. like, d- does my practice just start in 2016 and everything I did before that doesn't count? And like, that would be like probably half of the Zazen I've ever done in my life just out the window. So that's ridiculous thing. Number one, but ridiculous thing. Number two is what about all the other practice I'm doing in the midst of life that I'm not counting as Zazen, you know, who knows how much it is, but it's not nothing. I mean, the fact that, that you can quantify practice at all yeah into like a formula of like i don't know i i don't know it sounds like there's actual growth like you've been you know in one hand it's like maybe you've been meditating less but it's also made you question the way you were doing things at all and i think the intention while you're meditating is just as important as the meditation. Yeah. Well, and it's not even that much less. That's the thing. You know, it's like 41 minutes one day and 46 minutes the next day and 32 minutes the next day. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's whatever I can do. 
But that was enough to sort of render the idea that the specific number of minutes matters totally absurd to me. And so I stopped counting. And counting isn't just a counting thing. It's like there's an action that I have to take every time I sit to log it, like with a phone, you know? Right, right, right. And and that was becoming part of like the ritual of what I was doing inevitably because it's just something I had to do in order to track it. And it became a little bit compulsive because it was like, oh, I just did some zazen. I better go go get my phone and put it in there, you know, if I were to spontaneously sit at some point. Or if I were to sit in a situation where I didn't have access to that, I would be anxious about getting that time, counting that time. And it's all completely ridiculous. And so I stopped doing it uh, a week ago and the whole quality of my practice has changed because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's 30 more seconds left on the timer, you know, and the baby starts crying like that doesn't matter. I love it. I think that's that is the practice. Mm-hmm. I think that you're adding things to your practice, not subtracting. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean. That's totally how it feels. <laughs> it's like it's like I'm becoming more uh, skillful at at doing this practice by you know, removing kind of training wheels from it. So, so that's where, that's where it's at is like, now it's, now it's just a thing I do. Uh, and no one, no one is counting anything. And, um, it's, 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 it feels a lot lighter and a lot more natural. That's great. And the baby waking up doesn't bother me as much. I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't bother me at all anymore. But there's there's just a moment of just like. <sighs> but it's okay. not like breaking your, you know, your expectation of that you had to right. meditate for a certain amount of time. And and now it's ruined because you <laughs> the baby woke up. You have to go d- tend to that. Right. Now my expectation is that's going to happen at some point. And so yeah. and I, I will enjoy it while I can. Well, I'm excited. For you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's great. It's, 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 I mean, this is how it always goes, right? It's like one revelation after another with no end. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'll, I'll check, I'll ask you about this later on and, uh, we'll, we'll see how, uh, how it's progressed or how it's changed again. And, uh, but we'll try not to track it in, in <laughs> yeah, a we won't keep track way. of how many episodes go by before that happens. <laughs> So what about you? You've had a, you've had a, a change in sort of professional life that that we've been talking about yeah. uh, as something that was coming. We've we've talked since that started, but not about that. And uh, I'm wondering how that's affected your rhythm. I don't know if I overestimated how difficult it would be, or if I just did everything that I said I was going to do, and then it ended up not being difficult because uh-huh. I did those things. Um. <laughs> I don't know. And then and the uh, the vacation was was amazing. Right. You know, seeing my family and just just feeling like a part of things and feeling welcome and um at ease and just feeling so comfortable there. Like it does make me feel a little melancholic that I don't live in Austin, Texas with them. Mm. So yeah, there is some sadness there, I guess, that I that I can't do that all the time. Um but uh, coming back here, it uh, 
just it did make me feel really like refreshed and ready to just start a a new chapter cool even though it was it's it's a lot of work it's not it feels less stressful than when i was interning um Mm. and i think it's because i know i'm gonna work eight hours a day um i i at least have to do that and um before it's like okay i don't know how much time i'm gonna work uh, I'll work when I, you know, when they need me or when I can see a need for me to, to, to come in, but it wasn't, wasn't structured. And I, I just do a lot better with structure. So mm-hmm. I think it actually got easier somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's good to overestimate too what it's going to, how hard it's going to be before you start. Yeah. But I did, I have been sticking to, I wouldn't say it was, it's a strict meditation schedule or anything, but mm-hmm. I have definitely been meditating more often or you know more frequently mm-hmm. and um that's that's been really nice so cool. i i did the thing i did i did what i was gonna said i was gonna do um the the weird thing is is i i don't really drink very often and i think in these this past couple of weeks i drank like twice or something like that mm-hmm. and the first time it was great because I was with my family and I was just like, yeah, this is this is the this is the occasion I would want to drink in, you know. Right. Uh, and it was so much fun. And, you know, uh, my my sister-in-law sent me a video of me dancing. No one else was dancing, just me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just pure joy. And then I, I got here and hung out with friends and drank because I felt like I w- needed to keep up. Mm because I was with a lot of extroverts and in a loud place and I'm very like um, sensory sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get very tired, not just from people and their energy, but like music and visual sensory and everything. I just like want to go take a nap. Like I don't do very well with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think people, there's there's plenty of people that aren't even, I'm not on the spectrum or anything like that. Um, it's just, I think everybody needs to be aware of how sensory, um, objects affect them in their, their personal space and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but alcohol can kind of deaden that feeling mm. a little bit. So I just thought that that would be a good thing and made me unbalanced. And I just, I just hate being unbalanced, but I'm having to kind of like forgive myself for going through that and, mm you know, learning from it and moving past and, but also like allowing myself to be sad that I wasn't in control like I like to be, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. A so, lot going on in that one. That's kind of been my practice this weekend because that happened Friday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that, that is not who I want to be, but it is part of me. Mm. So um, it never really goes away. I always think that like that part of me comes up less, the less control, the more like dramatic, the more um, uh, not in control of my emotions part. And it does seem to come up more when there's alcohol involved or hormonal s- situations involved or, mm-hmm. you know, something where I don't like have as much control. And... Um, I really want to be like this good Buddhist that doesn't like, you know, ever like not be in control. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's where I'm at. I'm like, I just, 
it's okay that that happens sometimes. I have to remind myself. The reason I just smiled so big when you said good Buddhist is that I was just talking to another friend uh, about the fifth precept and intoxicants and he uses he, he he uses do you know do you know the language of uh, like parts work or like internal family systems or those kinds of things they're like there's you know secular psychological things where you sort of listen to the various you know this is going to sound crazier than <laughs> maybe because I don't have the right vocabulary it's not a crazy thing at all it's a very beautiful thing to do like listen to the various voices or parts of yourself and try and tease them out from each other and and help them with their relationship with each other as a way of sort of working through things have you ever run into anything like that yeah yeah but explain more well so so uh well i'll just tell you what he said and and why that good buddhist thing was funny the 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 my understanding about the parts work which is the phrase that they use for some of this stuff like internal family systems is like you have like your own family members sort of personalities and voices and things or like you, you know you have a family of your own like a scared child and like a protective mother and you know like those kinds of beings mm-hmm. inside of you but but the parts work that a lot of these people that are into this talk about is something a little more creative than that I feel like it's like you sort of hear a voice and you get to know the voice and you name that voice and you understand them as a character um, and so he has one that he was talking about called the good buddhist who uh, wants him to not, you know, break the precepts. And, uh, you know, and the fifth precept is always the the hard one for everybody. Uh, and yeah. uh, I totally do, too. I totally have a good Buddhist about alcohol, you know, in particular. Uh, and... The I, I don't I don't really relate to it anymore as I want to be a good Buddhist, but I have this voice that's like, you can't do the practice all the way unless you're up in like if you're cheating on that precept, you know, or something. Oh. like Oh, uh, and the, uh, you know, I have a reaction to that that feels like me. That's like, so what, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm not going to do any any precept perfectly. And I'm going to, my practice is still going to be my practice right. and this is what it is. But, but there's, but, but anyway, that good Buddhist voice, um, I think is a really interesting phenomenon to look at. And I wonder whether it's something that everyone who, or the many people kind of across cultures and times and places has as a way of relating to the Buddhism or the precepts, or if there's some sort of Judeo Christian American Puritan thing happening that's interacting with our buddhism yeah. in a way to create that it's it's hard to say i think um but but do you it, do you have that that uh i mean is is that a big feature in the way you're feeling now about what happened on friday and does sort it feature of. in other I mean, stuff too it, it doesn't i didn't think about it as i think this last time yeah when i was with my family i didn't think about it as breaking the presets uh-huh. because i didn't think of it as something that affected Uh, my relationship with people or me being able to uphold like uh my own personal vow does not harm people you Mm. know or Mm -hmm. or whatever um and so i mean i also i was just thinking like women might have a harder time Mm. upholding that precept having you know 
periods and stuff. Ooh, if we're, like we're going to count like that as breaking the precept, that's not fair, I feel like. <laughs> but it happens every month, and yeah. like it's hard to stay like not intoxicated in the, the hormones, I guess, if yeah. that makes sense. I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's just like I feel like there needs to be a cutout in the precept for that. So Friday was a combination uh-huh. of of you know alcohol and hormones and I couldn't I couldn't control it it just wasn't um you know it was fine until like you know I I needed to have a serious conversation and I feel like you know I didn't do well at that conversation mm-hmm. at all yeah like it was just too many too many things and um that's when I I realized I broke the precept because I feel like I hurt myself and other people Mm. in that Mm -hmm. conversation Mm -hmm. you know i hurt my like my ego i guess i i did hurt the ego but i also just uh you know hurt my confidence or Mm. you know just my feelings towards myself Mm -hmm. my uh Mm self-esteem whatever yeah uh, and that's when I'm like, then I broke it because I hurt people. Uh huh. Maybe there's more precepts than just the intoxication one that became entangled at that point, and then it starts mm. to get trickier. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's how it works. It's like a net, where you know, like if you're, well, I don't know. That's not a very good metaphor. Like, <laughs> like it's, 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 if you. If you're if you're working with one, it's not as it's not as complex of a problem. It's like you're either in relation with the precept or out of relation with the precept. And either way, you're thinking about the precept. It reminds me of something Sensei says all the time about um, when people feel guilty about skipping Dokusan or like like needing to cancel Dokusan with him. Uh, he has gotten into a few situations with people that he's told me about where it's like you're still coming to Dokusan, you know, you're still you're still sitting with me the whole time that you're out doing whatever you're doing, thinking about not going to Dokusan, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, uh, I feel like also a pretty good description of how it feels to sort of have a thing with one of the precepts, you know, it's like, I'm drinking a beer right now after a long day and uh-huh. I'm thinking about the fifth precept. And that is a way in a way of keeping the precept. You know what I mean? breaking it yes. in relation to it. But when you start to bonk into the mall and get into a situation that's like the situation itself presents the lesson and the struggle and the challenge uh, of real life, you know, that beer isn't hurting anyone, <laughs> right? Uh, right. I mean, it could maybe, and that's the thing to sort of keep an eye on uh, in your relationship with one particular precept. But when you're in a situation like the one you're describing, it's like obvious what's happening or obvious afterwards what happened. And uh, in, in the, the more precepts you have to sort of look at the situation, the better you can understand the real karmic complexity of what happened, not just sort of like the abstract set of rules that you did or didn't keep. You know what I mean? It's like a mm-hmm. better picture of what was really coming up for you and how ha- and 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 that having that picture is you know something to work with about yourself in your real life and not just like some kind of checklist of whether you did or did not do specific deeds you know there's so many more factors into what was really happening and you know it begins to look more like real life and less like a sort of simulation 
of monastic, you know, rules from 2000 years ago as a way of guiding your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and the reason I wanted to bring it up at all is because I don't, I don't want other people. And I, and this has been part of my practice from the beginning is I'm very hard on myself Mm. and I don't want other people who, because at one point or another, we're all going to be dysregulated mm-hmm. and do stuff that might hurt people. Um, that we have to learn how to be compassionate towards ourselves and forgive our forgive ourselves, or I don't think we can move past that. We can do better next time if mm-hmm. we are constantly like hating on the fact that we we weren't the perfect Buddhist mm-hmm. in that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, then of course that can you can you can always get under that in classical Buddhist terms too. Like if you're hanging on, clinging to whatever yeah, thing you did, absolutely. you're just creating more and more and more and more karma. And you know, there's a sort of tension or clenching around that thing that causes you know, it's like balancing on a balance beam. I I often think of the sort of dynamic balance of Zen life as something that requiring, you know, like the grace and control and subtlety of movement that it takes to actually balance. If you're like flexing all your muscles at once, you're going to fall off the balance beam really fast. Right. And, <laughs> and I, I sort of feel that way about hanging on to, you know, it's, it's, it's as though you're walking on the balance beam and you miss, you took, you took a step that was sort of off and you almost fell and you got, you righted yourself. And if you're still like, hung up on the last step how are you going to take the next step uh you know you have to completely let go of everything you just did in order to take the next step without falling and uh you know that that's uh that's i mean that's the sort of physical kind of embodied way that i move past something that i'm hanging on to uh, in my practice i have a tendency to do that as well i mean it's a pretty universal tendency but right (laughs) We are human. Right. But I, but I do, I do feel like some of us are very focused on that, uh, that trait of ours as a thing that we do that holds us back. And sounds like, it sounds like a thing. It's a thing you've thought a lot about. It's a thing I've thought a lot about. Uh, I sort of think sensei was getting at that with my name when he named me the, you know, after the stick for hitting people, you know, it was almost a kind of stop hitting yourself kind of, kind Mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, you know, lesson. Um, so I definitely relate to how, to how you're feeling. And I, and I actually really appreciated given how short of a time ago it was, I really appreciated the way that you were able to say that you're allowing yourself to feel sad about it because it takes me a long time to be okay with feeling bad and not want want, not want to, you know, like completely overcompensate and call everyone and, you know, straighten everything out and all that. You know? Yeah, no, I think I just watched a lot of YouTube or something. <laughs> Go back to that addiction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It I I I uh yeah, definitely um it's hard to feel sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's why they call it sad. Cause sometimes I feel like I don't have a good reason to be sad. Mm. Unlike I I think, you know, well, that working has been going really well. And everything else has been going really well. I've kind of like, I'm at the point where I I graduated and I I have a new job and like all I'm married and like all these these uh, goals that I had set that major life goals are like mm-hmm. 
I've made it and uh, I've I've accomplished all of them at 30 years old and uh -huh. I should be very very happy. So why would I be sad mm. ever? Mm. 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 <laughs> oh, I relate to this so much. Like right now, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know about the reason to have reason to be sad part. I mean, maybe maybe in a way, like I feel like I've got that checklist of things that are all checked off too about my life circumstances, and then there's still something uh, that I. Um, that I can't settle into about it. Yeah. But, but, but also like you should like, I, I should be happy about it is that's another layer of it. I feel like another thing we could talk about is just feeling dissatisfied with everything. Uh -huh. Even when you have everything you just said that you wanted and <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> yeah, I think about like, you know, we were watching Alexander Hamilton, you know, the, the musical, and he's uh -huh. like, dude, he's got that one song, like, I will never be satisfied. I'm like, oh, you can accomplish so many things when you're not satisfied. Mm -hmm. You'll never mm -hmm. be happy with any of the things that you accomplish. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? I just, it, it kind of frustrates me because it's like I have that tendency that Alexander Hamilton has in that musical, and I don't like it. Like, yeah. when I watch that movie, it makes me frustrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's easy to see in somebody else and harder to face when it's you, right? Yeah. The, I mean, but it's also like, this is like Buddhism 101, you know? I'm not into that whole thing about dukkha meaning something that isn't suffering, you know? Uh, you know, lots of people like to translate it as unsatisfactoriness, which is sort of like what we're talking about. It's it's just that feeling of like, it's not, it's not there. I'm not quite there. And that just feels yeah. like it diminishes it to me. Like it diminishes the suffering of suffering and, and also the fact that that unsatisfactoriness is suffering, like it is suffering to not feel yeah. like settled in your life. And the, but, but also, you know, the reason that word is used is because the Buddha is having compassion for people for how hard it is to just be themselves and live their lives. Right. Like it is hard. It's hard as hard as it possibly can be. And, and the, the way out of suffering from that is about acceptance of it as it is, right? Mm -hmm. That the, like this is this is the you know no matter how much more you want, like there that's not, that feeling will not be the end. Like, like that, you know, that, that feeling will be, that feeling is, I mean, it, it, it's sort of motivating in a way. It's like you make, yeah. it keeps you going, but like accepting that feeling and not, it means kind of like being okay with being sad. It's like being okay with wanting more is kind of just being okay with being alive, right? Like if, if it's not going to go away, you're not going to satisfy that feeling and be like, okay, I'm done now. You know, yeah. like that, that feeling drives us onward and that is that is the thing to be embraced in buddhism i feel like it's just you know staying alive <laughs> you know as as but if it's it, like the root of all suffering mm -hmm. then and the only way to not suffer is to kind of you know not want things then how are we supposed to be okay with wanting things well that's what i i, I think it's not that not wanting things is the way out the way out is being okay wanting things you know, like not wanting that feeling of wanting things to be satisfied is the only thing. <laughs> the only thing that that you have to stop wanting is to stop wanting. 
Because what what do you what are you gonna do if you stop wanting? I mean, like this is this is the this is uh, in a way like people use this as a criticism of Buddhism to say like if you I just know sit they there use with it as a criticism, but I don't want to want anything anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me either. I don't either. I want to. I want to. I want to do nothing like all the Zen masters say. Yeah, I just exactly. want to not do anything all day. I don't want to have any any more goals. I'm a, I'm I'm afraid at this point. I'm afraid of making new goals because I know how much my goals made me suffer. Although they've got me to a place mm. where you know I wanted to go. Yeah. Well, where do the goals come from? Like, do you sit there and make them up? Like, could you stop yourself at any time, or do they just like sort of appear unbidden and then suddenly, shit, I have a goal now. <laughs> like, <laughs> where, like, where do they? Where do they? How do they get in there? um i think they come from where i think that i i should be in my life and then those expectations like kind of grow over time of Mm. like uh, it's like yeah i I was like for so long i'm like i need to have a career like that's kind of a thing i need to be successful at life i need to get married and i need to um do all the things that you know check all the boxes off so I'm there, right? Um, and they, I don't think that that's it. Like, there's going to be more goals. Mm-hmm. But I want to just, I just want to be here and enjoy every day and not worry about, the, and not like live for the goals mm. anymore. Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gasho.